Did y'all read the Odyssey online? Like it's this, this online blog that people from different colleges can post on. And in 2015, someone from Wake Forest wrote a piece. Her name is Nicolette McCann. And it was right, published right after spring break in 2015. And she said, it was called this, Work Forest, a Lifestyle. And her little blog post starts like this. She said, it starts with, I haven't slept in 48 hours. Believe it or not, I've actually heard this phrase come out of multiple people's mouths. But you are not all that surprised, are you? The real question is, why aren't you surprised? My spring break consisted of a whole lot of nothing, which meant a lot of Netflixing. I mean, a lot. A real relief after what had seemed so far as the semester sent from hell. But as one episode turned into 25, I couldn't help but think how unproductive I was being. Soon my thoughts turned into anxiety, and anxiety turned into fear. Fear that I was wasting away not only my break, but my life. As much as I love Wake Forest and would never think about leaving, there is something, well actually a few things, about this culture that just didn't seem to sit right. I'm not proud to say it, she goes on, I'm not proud to say it, but Wake breeds a culture of kids that feel unproductive unless they're doing something every minute of every day. And granted, that may be because we are the ones who are going to grow up to be the future leaders of our generation, to quote my communications professor, but I cannot even take an hour out of my day to catch up on my favorite Netflix shows without feeling guilty. There's something wrong. At first, I thought it was just me, she writes, that I was the only one who felt like this. But when the topic came up in my communications class, I knew that I'd hit the nail on the head. Even my teacher was nodding her head in agreement when we all raised our hands, admitting just how overwhelmed we were. And that's when it hit me. If the teacher seems to be just as overwhelmed as we are, then why are we doing this to ourselves? We are running in circles just to keep up with each other. Is that familiar? Do y'all feel that right now? Um, One of my favorite authors is a guy named Walker Percy, and in one of his novels, he has this phrase. He says um, that you can get all A's and still flunk life. And I feel like Wake Forest has that in its, it's you have that sense here that there's such a push for y'all to be um, academically, just, just the, the intensity with which you're, you're pushed, that you can get all A's here and you can still flunk life. Um, tonight we're going to talk about work together. And what I want to do as we talk about work is I want us to diagnose the issue, like what's, what's wrong with the way that we see work, um, and discover the solution together. Um, we've been reading Ephesians together this semester, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. And tonight we're going to read a short section, which is Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. Um, this is in the back of your bulletins. You can follow along there as I read it. This is God's word for us tonight. It is completely true, and it's given to us in love. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. So a little bit earlier than this, in Ephesians 5, 18, Paul urges the church, he urges us to be filled with the Spirit. And then in verse 21 of chapter 5, which we read last week, um, he says, that Paul says that what this looks like, being filled with the Spirit looks like, is that it looks like submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he gives us these three sets of relationships where that takes place. 
um, where that's lived out. And, and what he's saying with this is that uh, being spiritual, being filled with the spirit, being spiritual isn't this private mystical experience, but it's actually a shared public experience that it's lived out in community. And last week, if you were with us, we talked through two of Paul's first two examples, the relationship between parents and children and husbands and wives. And tonight, in this text, we have bond servants and masters. And the, quote, the closest modern equivalent we have in our culture would be the relationship between an employer and an employee or a coach and a, um, a, a player or um, the relationship that you have with your professors. Um, And before we get into talking about work, I just want to talk about one issue, and that's verse 5, this this sentence, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. Because some of the other translations render Paul's Greek word here as slaves. Slaves, obey your masters. And so this raises the question, then, does the Bible condone slavery? And many have said that it does. A number of pastors before and after the Civil War in our country have used this very verse to justify slavery. Um, In the first century in Rome, slavery wasn't about race. About a third of the people were slaves. Um, And Roman slaves could own property, they could marry, they could buy their freedom. And that's why this translation, the translation that we use, the the English Standard Version, um, that's why it translates this term bondservant. Because um, it, it was a slave, but it's very different than American chattel slavery. And all that said, in Ephesians 6, Paul is not condoning slavery, but he's also not um, condemning slavery. That's actually beside the point of what he's saying here. He's actually, he's telling Christian slaves, Christian bondservants, how they should live their lives in the tough place that they find themselves. One of my friends says that it's like Paul, as if Paul was writing to a camp of political prisoners that have been unjustly imprisoned, And he's not addressing whether or not they should be there or they shouldn't be there, but he's addressing how they should live where they are now. Um, but it, we need to ask the question, or I want to ask the question with y'all, what has Christianity said about slavery over the years? Well, Paul and others in the Bible say over and over again that when Jesus brings his kingdom, when the kingdom of God arrives, there will be no more slavery, no more bondage, no more oppression. And that Christians are called to work together to make our world look progressively more and more like that kingdom here and now. Paul says in another place that um, in Christ there is no Jew or Greek. In Christ there is no slave or free, but all are equal in Christ. In the Middle Ages, there were um, popes, Pope Pius II, Paul III, Urban VIII, Benedict XIV, who strongly condemned slavery. In the 13th century, the greatest medieval theologian, Thomas Aquinas, he said slavery was wicked because it denied people made in God's image. It denied them equal access to justice. In the 19th century, William Wilberforce, his passion for scripture drove him to successfully bring an end to slavery forever in England. And here in the United States, virtually all of the American abolitionists were deeply devout Christians. They saw that all slavery was the direct antithesis of the Bible's commandments to love your neighbor as yourself. Slavery is the opposite of what Paul urged last week, putting other people's interests before your own. How can you ever treat as property those whom Jesus died to rescue? It was the Bible that finally dealt the death blow to slavery after thousands of years of its existence in most every culture around the world. And it's why places um, where slavery still exists most openly today, like there's Mauritania in Africa, there's still, I think they estimate like 2 or 3% of, of the country is still enslaved. Um, 
Places where it still exists today openly are non-Christian cultures because the Bible, wherever it is taken seriously, always sows the seeds for the abolition of slavery. Even if many have twisted a few biblical texts in impossible directions, trying to defend the indefensible. So Paul's not addressing in our text tonight whether or not slavery is wrong, but how those who are suffering as slaves should live here and now. So what is the issue in our text tonight? Well, like I said earlier, um, the closest modern equivalent we have in our culture to who Paul's addressing would be the relationships between an employer and employee or to teachers and students. So as we think about this together, I want to bring into focus your work now as students and your work in the future when you graduate here and you have jobs. Um, there was an article last week. Excuse me. There's an article last week in the Atlantic, written by a man named Derek Thompson. Derek, Tom, Derek Thompson, and the name of the article was "Workism is Making America Miserable." This is what he writes. He says, "For the college-educated elite, work has morphed into a religious identity, promising identity, transcendence, and community, but failing to deliver." Our desks were never meant to be altars. What is workism, he asked. He said, it's the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but it's also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. As a culture, we have turned work itself into the focus of our work. Why do we work? Why do you grind it out? Why do you bust your tail in your classes? Like, Why do so many Wake students graduate to get high-paying jobs with insane hours. This is what Thompson writes. He says that the best educated and highest-earning Americans who can have whatever they want, they have chosen the office for the same reason that devout Christians attend church on Sundays. It's where they feel most themselves. We've been taught by our culture, we've been taught by one another, that our work itself is to be the focus of our work, that somehow our jobs are going to provide us with the fulfillment Um, And with ultimate satisfaction. But in each of our four verses tonight, Paul asserts that Christ is to be the focus of our work. Verse 5 says, be obedient as you would to Christ. Verse 6, behave as servants of Christ. Verse 7, render your work as to the Lord. And verse 8, knowing that we will receive back from the Lord. Paul is saying that for those who have faith in Christ, for Christians, whether you're a student or professor, an employee or an employer, we are all bond servants of Christ. He's saying that workers and bosses, students and teachers, are both accountable to God. We're called to approach our work as if we were working for the Lord and not base it on how we feel about our bosses or our teachers or the work itself at the moment. Um, Tim Keller once said that that fundamentally there are two anti-biblical views that most of us bring to our work. And those, whether it be schoolwork or work after school when you have jobs, And each of these views drains us of the meaning and value and joy that we could experience from our work. So one of these views says that work is a curse and that play or recreation is what gives real meaning to my life. This view says that the the only reason I work is to make money so that I can do my real living on my free time. And the second view is, is the opposite, or it seems the opposite of this, which says that work is salvation. My work is where I look for deliverance from my sense of meaninglessness. Um, This is what that article calls workism. My work is my identity. If the first view says, I work in order to live, the second view says, I live in order to work. And both views are tragic. Um, But the Bible tells us a different story. The Bible tells us the story that um, in Genesis we're told 
that work was actually here from the very beginning. That God called Adam and Eve to cultivate the garden in Eden long before sin entered in. And if sin had never entered into the world, there would still be work. And the picture that we're given of life when Jesus returns and the new heavens and new earth, when, when Jesus comes back to make all things new, the picture that we're given um, is that there will be work. Did you know that? That there will actually be work in glory. Um, some, you know, some imagine heaven as this never-ending vacation with fat babies on clouds. Um, but the Bible says that's not what's going to be. And the Bible says that we'll actually have work, that we, um, that we will have a calling in the new heavens and the new earth. And that it will be um, infinitely satisfying. It will be free from our selfishness. It will be free from frustration. But until then, our work has been cursed. It's, it itself, work is not a curse, but work has been cursed. What's the difference? Well, work, your work is never going to go right, the side of the glory. There will always be weeds and thorns in the garden. Right? Your hard drives are going to crash. You'll forget what you studied. Your professors won't be fair. Your work will feel like toil. And part of the consequences of Adam and Eve's first sin is that work has been cursed. But work itself is part of what it means to be human, and it always will be. Here's the thing. If you see work as a curse, if you see work itself as a curse, then you will see play as the only place of meaning. Um, Which means you'll actually be blind to the purposes that God has for you in your schoolwork and in your job. You'll do the minimum required, and you'll always be working for the weekend. If you see your work as a curse, you'll be lazy and procrastinate and you'll be bored. You'll be, ta- de- be detached. I mean, you all know this, right? That, that you experience this, like when, when work feels like a curse, that's, that's why you procrastinate. That's why we procrastinate. Um, you might put in long hours, but your heart will be elsewhere and you're going to miss out on all that God is doing through your work. Seeing, seeing work as a curse says that you work in order to live and that work then is a necessary evil. Now, on the other hand, if you see work as salvation, um, that says that you're, you're saying that you live in order to work and that work is your identity. Schoolwork or your job becomes where you look for significance. Right? You look to your work to tell you who you are. Um, if that's you, if you look to your work to tell you who you are, that means that you can never leave behind your school books. Right? That's, that's when, when you look to your work to tell you who you are. That's why when you're operating out of that, that's... Um, when you obsess over your grades, right? you have to get the A. And when you leave college, if, if, work, um, if you live in order to work, if work is your salvation, you're never going to be able to leave the office behind. Like, you might go home at night, but your heart will always be at work. You're always going to be checking your emails. It will absorb all of your thoughts. You will always see yourself as Joe the banker or Joe the pre-med student or Joe the consultant more than Joe the Christian or Joe the son or Joe the brother, Joe the friend. If work becomes your definition, then burnout is coming. And the constant fear, um, this constant worry that if you fail in your work, you are a failure in life. I know I felt that. The, the fear that if I fail my work, I'll be a failure in life. Um, and you know, I hear you guys saying this all the time. Right, saying that you just, you've got to keep up the hustle. Right? You can't slack, not even for a week, in any of your classes because then you'll fall behind and you'll get less than an A or B, a or B and that will affect your GPA, which will affect whether or not you get that job or whether or not you get into that grad school, which will affect your career, which, like, what? What's next? Like, why, why does that matter? Because you've been told and you believe that your career has the ultimate power to tell you who you are. 
that your job has the ultimate verdict on the value of your life. And so what do you do? You stay busy, right? You feed your anxiety with more busyness. Um, There's a quote on the front of your bulletin from a man named James Houston, and he writes this. He says, the Desert Fathers, which was a protest movement against worldliness in the early church, the Desert Fathers spoke of busyness as moral laziness. Busyness can also be an addictive drug, which is why its victims are referred to as workaholics. Busyness acts to repress our inner fears and personal anxieties as we scramble to achieve an enviable image to display to others. We become outward people, obsessed with how we appear rather than inward people, reflecting on the meaning of our lives. So Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor, he could say that busyness is the enemy of spirituality. So whether you look at work as identity or work as a, as a curse, both views, they grow out of the same root. In both cases, they come out of a trust deficit towards God. Because when you see work as a curse, when you work to live, you're looking at work solely for the rewards, right? Solely for the money. Not trusting that God has a greater purpose for your work. And when you see work as salvation, when you live to work, you are looking to work to create your identity. Not trusting that God alone gives you an identity that is much greater than your occupation alone. In both problems, work is curse and work is salvation, they leave God out of the story, which is the opposite of what Paul does, invoking Christ four times in our short passage. And these are the challenges we face, right? I face these two. Um, and I think most of us don't just have one of these issues as I was thinking about this. I was trying to divide it. Like, are there work as like live to work people and is there work to live people? I think they, they really overlap. I mean, they overlap for me in, in my heart. Like we, we all live with divided, confused hearts. About a decade ago, a, decade ago, a sociologist named Robert, Win, Robert Wuthnow, who is at Princeton, he conducted a survey of U.S. workers and um, he, his data revealed our mixed feelings about it all. I want to share some of this with you. He said, while 89% agree that our society is too materialistic, 84% also say, I wish I had more money than I do. 71% believe being greedy is a sin against God, yet 76% says, having money gives me a good feeling about myself. 69% admire those who take a lower paying job in order to help others, and 52% want to reduce their work hours but 68% would be willing to work longer hours if it meant more pay. Society could be improved. 71% say society could be improved if people placed less emphasis on money. And at the same time, 80% admire those who make a lot of money by working hard. Y'all, we are a hot mess. Like, we are so conflicted on this. So what is the solution? What is the solution to our problem? The solution Paul gives us is to see our work as calling. Now, some will say, well, the real solution is that you need to find what you love. Like, just keep looking. Never settle. Do what you love. Your dream job is out there, so never stop hustling. Like, don't only settle with the job that, that you are, you're, it's perfect for you. That's just the work is salvation. That, that's, how, that's how deep ingrained on us this is. Steve Jobs gave a, uh, a commencement speech, I think it was 2010, where he said that. He was like, only, only work your dream job. And that is just so in the water for us. That's the work is salvation thing. Now, others will say, they'll say, okay, I hear you. So what you need then is some sort of work-life balance. You need zen. You need, like, if you're lazy, you need to work harder. If you're a workaholic, you need to chill out. But that just doesn't work, right? It can't. I mean, what's the cycle here at Wake? 
cycle is either, and correct me afterwards if I'm wrong on this, but this is what I think the cycle is. This is what it was when I was in college. It hasn't changed much. Either it's procrastination followed by all-nighters, or it's study your tail off followed by drinking until you can't remember. Right? It's just this, this cycle. We, we can't figure out the work-life balance. And as I was um, trying to figure out if the rhythms here are, are seeing work as salvation or work as curse, right? If wake, does wake live to work or work to live? I mean, I just don't think you can pull the two apart. Right? They, they are like these evil twins that, um, that are always intertwined. And the problem with this, this, um, this thing we hear about trying to find the, the right life-work balance is that uh, it doesn't address the deeper heart issue. The answer needs to come from a radical new version of work. We need to see work, whether it's your schoolwork or your work after you graduate, as a holy calling. This means that the deep answer to our dissatisfactions from work are not going to be found in time management strategies. It's not going to be found in the perfect career because that doesn't exist. It's going to be found in finding God's beautiful purpose for your work. The real answer is not going to be found in some set, the right set of life hacks or mastering productivity or getting the perfect internship or having the best spring break plans, but it will be found in finding purpose and dignity in your calling. Look at verse 6 with me. This is what Paul says. He says, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So what is Paul saying here? Paul's saying that musicians should play music. Teachers should educate kids. Students should study. Homemakers should cook meals as as they are serving Christ and his kingdom. Paul is saying that God is your boss behind your boss. So I want to get practical with you all. What is this? What is this? How does this play into how you decide what to do for your work? Well, the perfect job doesn't exist. Um, And if you're spending 70% of your time doing what you like, stay with it. If you spend 70% of your time doing what you like, stay with it. I've got a friend in Richmond who is an infectious disease specialist, and um, he, he has to spend half of his time doing paperwork in order to spend 50% of his time with patients. And that 50-50, doing 50% of the job that he hates in order to do 50% of the job he loves, that's worth it for him. Um, the, only being able to do 50% that he loves. Because you will not get 100% until Jesus comes back. And friends, there are no little people, there are no little jobs. The kingdom of God is wherever his people are. Which means that when you are living out of your identity in Christ, it doesn't mean if, it doesn't matter if you're a, a barista making a cup of coffee, or if you're sharing the gospel with someone, or you're mowing your yard, or eating dinner, or writing a song, or feeding a baby, or making an Excel spreadsheet, or studying in the library. All things that are true and good and beautiful, all things that are done with gratitude for Christ, all things from the smallest to the greatest to promote flourishing are both the proclamation and the installation of the kingdom. So how do you decide what to do? I'd say first pray. Ask God to give you the wisdom and discernment about where he wants you to serve in his kingdom. And whether that's operating on people's brains in the 40 years of school that you need to go through to do that, or it's being a consultant in some big consultant firm or starting your own business or practicing law or teaching third graders or being a mom and a dad one day or going into ministry. Whatever it is, it has meaning because you have meaning to God and Jesus is alive. 
So do work that, that loves and serves your neighbor and brings glory to God. That's what I mean when I say that work is a calling. That God calls you into your own lives to do work that brings him glory and service to your neighbor. And friends, Jesus had a calling. And he never took his eyes off of it. In John 4, Jesus tells us, or we're told, that Jesus loved to do the work of his Father who sent him. Even though it meant loving self-righteous people and loving angry people and loving ungrateful people and loving annoying people, the Bible says that the reason Jesus went to the cross to fulfill his calling, to do the work of rescuing sinners from sin and death, was because of the joy set before him. Jesus loved his Father who sent him so he could... He could love the people his father loved and called him to serve. Jesus had no resentment for people. And he did work hard. He worked so hard that one time he passed out, just completely worn out, in the bottom of a boat during a storm. But Jesus did not seek his worthiness from his work. His fulfillment came from serving his father in heaven. So the question we all must ask and answer for ourselves Something that you must ask and answer for yourself is, will you trust the one who went to the cross for you when he gives you your calling? Will you serve others, putting them above yourself, out of love for Jesus, out of trust in him? Do you see how different that is from working for money or working for self-worth? I mean, because what if, what if instead of seeing your work as salvation or seeing your work as a curse, what if what motivated you to work was the smile of Jesus? What if the smile of Jesus and not the size of your paycheck or the score on your MCAT or the approval of people or the strength of your faith faith, or even your own goodness, what if the smile of Jesus became your true source of validation? And friends, we need this in these cycles of death that we live in, these cycles from seeing our work as a curse and seeing our work as salvation. What we need is a righteousness that doesn't come from us or come from our work, but a righteousness that comes from God. Y'all, you and I both, like we need to quit trying to produce our own righteousness. We need to quit trying to justify our lives. And I know, I know I'm not the only one who craves the deep rest that comes with this. Because the work of justifying your existence was done for you once and for all in Jesus. Do you know what the gospel says? The gospel says that the God of the universe is smitten with you. And so he came and he died for you. He went to the cross for you to buy you back from sin and death for himself. And Don't you want to be smitten, just smitten by the love of a God who went to the cross and to hell for you? Who absolutely adores you? Work for him. Work for him knowing that you cannot fail because he will never quit loving you. And he will make your journey through this short life sweet. Let's pray. Um, Father, we, uh, we confess, I know my friends here, the, just the, the pressure of, of work, um, whether it be schoolwork or um, just the, the work of life, that it is, uh, sometimes it feels like a curse that we feel like we work to live. And other times it feels like salvation that we, we live to work. But we thank you that you give us a solution, um, another way to live um, in Christ, that work is a, is a calling, that we can actually work for you um, knowing that our identity is secure in Christ. And I pray for my friends as they hear this tonight, um, those who know you, those who, who don't, um, wherever people are on this, um, would you help us to make sense of this? Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name.